This is the heart of London's Bedsitterland, filled with the sights and sounds of young people living their lives in their own way. We're going to have to work out a rotor system. There just isn't room in here for the three of us. Well, I suppose we could finish off in the kitchen. Are you after my body? Of course. Sorry, it's already booked to do the washing up. The material is thinner than a bedsit wall, Radio Times. An entirely predictable comedy, but none the worse for it, the Starburst. Great cast, shame about the script, the Times. Yes, it's 1974's Man About the House. Hello and welcome to Britcom Goes to the Movies. This is the podcast where we watch a British comedy that made its way from the small screen to the big screen and find out if it was worth it. And with me tonight is a man who loves a seven o'clock click-off. It's Rob Heath. That isn't what I was expecting, but here's a man who can do things with a leg of lamb that'll make your eyes pop. It's Guy Walker. Brilliant. I'd like to know which other ones you had. A seven o'clock cock-off. I'd forgotten. (laughs) Pushing some boundaries there. Uh, My other two were... Uh, if he found a plaster, he'd cut himself. It's Guy Walker. <laughs> I also had um, a man who's always measuring his virility. It's Rob Heath. I, we didn't pick the same ones. So, but my other one was the most unkind one. Sarcasm goes right over his head, but it's a pity his hair doesn't. It's Guy Walker. <laughs> <laughs> and for those who don't know, that does fit <laughs> as a bald the, man. Uh, this week we are discussing man about the house from 1974 it was released on the 22nd december 1974 just after the third series had finished it's got a 5.9 rating on imdb and there's no rating on rotten tomatoes but there is an audience score of 43 percent the tagline was the hilarious adventures of two girls with a man about the house I couldn't find any budget either for it, Rob. Um, but the film was a hit, taking £90,000 in London London alone, which in today's money is nearly a million pounds. Really? £90,000 in 1974 is a million quid? Apparently, yeah. Wow. Crazy. Um, yeah. So it did okay then, didn't it? Yeah, a hit, I think. With a, with a modest budget, I would imagine. Yeah, I don't think... I mean, to to me, it looked all right, but I don't think, obviously, the film finishes at Thames Television Studios, who made the TV show, so I can't imagine, you know, it would have cost them much. I mean, it it looked better than the old recordings of the TV show do, but then that's because they are old recordings on VHS. I notice when you watch it, because you can watch the the sitcom now on ITVX and you still see the little... um, the black and white tracking stripes in the uh, in the top corner when they uh, uh, when an advert breaks about to come on and they're yeah. doing the uh, the countdown for that. So yeah, the um, it does uh, it does look better, but I don't think the uh, I don't think it had a particularly big budget. I've um, looking at the uh, cast and crew. I've got some comedy connections uh, for you here, guys. So starting with uh, Richard O'Sullivan, who plays. Robin Tripp, both obviously in the TV show and in the film. Um, He started as a child actor in the 50s, and he was mostly doing dramas up until the point that he was in Carry On Teacher, where he plays one of the students in 1959. 
Uh, in the 60s, he was in two Cliff Richard films, The Young Ones and Wonderful Life, obviously not to be confused with It's a Wonderful Life. Um, and he was in the blockbuster that nearly bankrupted Fox, Cleopatra, the um, Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton one. Uh, for a deep dive into that, I suggest our listeners listen to the best pick episodes on Tom Jones, uh, because that was quite the disaster, that film. Um, TV sitcom-wise, he was in Foreign Affairs in 1966, which was a sitcom with Leslie Phillips and Ronnie Barker. Again, with Ronnie Barker in the Ronnie Barker Playhouse in 68. Colson and Simpson comedy in 1969. Uh, and then he starts his sitcom career proper in 1970 with Doctor in Charge, which he starred with Barry Evans from Mind Your Language fame. Uh, he played Dick Turpin. It was known to a lot of audiences, I think, in the 70s as Dick Turpin in an ITV drama. Um, after Man About the House, he had his own spin-off, Robin's Nest, of course, in which he plays the same character. Uh, and then a sitcom in the 80s called Me and My Girl about a single widowed father with a teenage girl, uh, with a teenage daughter, uh, which also starred Tim Brooke Taylor, not playing the teenage daughter, I hasten <laughs> to add. Uh, Paula Wilcox, who plays Chrissy, her fist... Uh, her fist sitcom, uh, doing a uh, another Ronnie Barker type spoonerism there with a sudden TikTok <laughs> off. <laughs> uh, Paula Wilcox's first sitcom was The Lovers in 1970 with Richard Beckinsale, obviously another big sitcom name. Um, there was a 1973 film made of that, so maybe that's something we should add to our list, Guy. Definitely. Uh, she followed that up with uh, featuring in The Benny Hill Show, uh, of whom she said about Benny Hill... He was a bit peculiar, and uh, she refused to do some of the things that he asked her to do uh, as a 21-year-old on his show, like bend over a sofa. Uh, so she only did one episode of that. Uh, three episodes of The Liver Birds before she began recording Man About the House. After Man About the House, she has got a long list of sitcom credits, and she's still going. Uh, this includes things like Miss Jones and Son, Pizza Cook and Co., Blue Heaven, which was a Frank, uh, Frank Skinner sitcom from the mid-90s. We're, we're getting to my connection nice and early here, Guy, because uh, she's in a film called Outlaw, starring Sean Bean and Danny Dyer, which also features a scene with my dad. <laughs> I was going to ask you what the Rob Heath connection was this week. I thought I was going to struggle. I really thought I was going to struggle, and then uh, good old Paula Wilcox came through. Uh, Sally Thompson, who plays Joe, uh, she was in some sitcoms as a child, The Very Merry Widow in 1968 and Three Girls in 1969. In 1970, this is uh, interesting to say the least, Guy, she was in The Railway Children, where she played an 11-year-old at age 20. <laughs> uh, she was, two, at the time, two years older than Jenny Agatha, who was playing her much older sister. Amazing. Bizarre, but they, like they wouldn't allow her to do any kind of drinking or smoking where any members of the public could uh, see, or like things like dry, even things like driving and stuff. Uh, bizarre. Why cast a twenty-year-old as an eleven-year-old? Very, very odd. Uh, she's also in Straw Dogs, guy. I uh, that. She gave up, gave up acting in 1980 to travel the world. Uh, made a few stage and TV appearances after having children, but comedy-wise, her last appearance was on The Lily Savage Show in 1997. Next, we come to sitcom royalty Brian Murphy. In the 1960s, he was in a sketch show called World of Comedy with Michael Crawford and John Le Mazurier. I mean, that's uh, yeah. some big sitcom names there. 
Uh, another called Baker's Half Dozen. Love Story, not that one. And The Misfit. After Man About the House, of course, Man About the House spawned two British spin-offs, one being Robin's Nest, which we've already mentioned, the other George and Mildred, uh, in which he did 38 episodes. I'm sure we'll hear more about that as the episode goes along. Um, and there's also a film of George and Mildred, Guy, from 1980, so another one to <laughs> the list. Uh, through the 80s, there was The Incredible Mr. Tanner, L for Lester, and Lame Ducks. Moving on to the 90s for Brian Murphy, he was in one episode of One Foot in the Grave, uh, and one episode of Next of Kin, two episodes of Paul Merton's uh, Life of Comedy. Uh, he was in some kids' TV as well, Wizardora and Mike and Angelo. Do you remember those? I remember, yeah, very well. Uh, both mainstays of my childhood. Me too. Um, he was back with Paul Merton again in his Golden and Simpsons show. Uh, six episodes of Mrs. Merton and Malcolm, which I'd love to go back and see if, if that's if you can find that anywhere. The sitcom he's been been in more episodes of than anything else is Last of the Summer Wine, uh, in which, okay, of course, not original, um, not an original character, uh, but that show ran for years and years and years. 73 episodes playing Alvin between 2003 and 2010. Still going into the next decade, he is in the, uh, the infamous Run for Your Wife film, which... I'm sure we're going to get to it at some point. Yeah. He's in, he's at, so everyone from the younger generation seems to kind of want to involve him and stuff because he's such a commodity. He's in plebs, he's in the cafe, and he's in a brilliant episode of Man Down. Um, and he's still working now, well into his 90s. He's 92 now at the time of recording. Uh, Yutha Joyce, who plays Mildred, her first comedy credit was also Benny Hill in the 60s, as well as Frankie Howard show. Uh, she has, Started in an interesting looking horror film, which I want to try and find with Tallulah Bankhead and Stephanie Powers called Die, Die, My Darling. Oh, I'd, I'd like to see that. Mm. Uh, she's also in a Best Picture winning film, Man for All Seasons. Uh, sitcom credits include two episodes of Steptoe and Son, 23 episodes of Me Mammy. Don't remember that. I'm, I'm shrugging at that. Uh, and then came Man About the House. Uh, she's in the film Steptoe and Son Ride Again. I'm sure we'll probably get to that at some point, Guy. Mm. One episode of On the Buses, uh, and her last credit was the film with George and Mildred before she died at an all-too-early age of 53 in 1980. Mm. Um, this might make you cry, Guy. Brian Murphy, who played George, who we've just talked about, was said to be at her uh, by her bedside visiting hospital when she died. Uh, the writers, Johnny Mortimer... Uh, he started off writing for Round, Round the Horn, which, of course, is like the beginning of modern British comedy, basically. Yeah. That's um, hilariously listed on IMDb as a podcast series, Round the Horn. <laughs> I suppose it was back then. They did that many episodes, didn't they? Yeah. But before they had podcast kids, there was a little thing called the radio. On the wireless, listening on to the wireless. Round the Horn. Round the Horn. He was on Round the Hall. He wrote for Tommy Cooper. He wrote for Bernard Cribbins. He wrote for Bernie Winters. He wrote for Jim Davidson again. Um, in the early 70s, he wrote in he wrote for a movie called No Sex, Please, We're British. I think that's something else we might get to. Mm. One episode of Love Thy Neighbour. Uh, and, of course, the Man About the House spin-offs, uh, including the American ones. And he died in 1992. His writing partner, Brian Cook, who also wrote this film, uh, pretty much the same credits as Johnny Mortimer uh, as they were writing partners, but he went on to create a couple of US sitcoms of his own. Um, 
one called Starting from Scratch and one called Too Close for Comfort, which seems to have almost the exact same premise as Mad About the House slash Three's Company. Uh, the director was John Robbins, not that one. Uh, directed lots of British comedy films in the 1970s, including other sitcom transfers like Love Thy Neighbour again, you guessed it, and yeah. That's Your Funeral. TV-wise, he directed the Marty Feldman Comedy Machine, 15 episodes of that. Mm. The Benny Hill Show, 14 episodes of that. A sitcom called The Best Things in Life with Harry H. Corbett and June Whitfield. And, yeah, that's uh, those are our comedy connections for our cast and crew of Man About the House Guy. Uh, but you've um, gone into a little bit more depth about uh, the the source material, which, of course, is the sitcom Man About the House and the making of the film. Yeah, so the show was written, like you said, by Brian Cook and Johnny Mortimer. The inspiration came actually from advertisements in the Evening Standard that specified for either male or female flatmates. The expectation at that time was, you know, these flats wouldn't be mixed. You know, you wouldn't have an unmarried male or female living together. Um, And that was kind of, you know, really popular at the time. The the idea of people living in sin was definitely... um, going around at that point so cook and mortimer were under contract at thames television and suggested a mixed gendered flat share comedy to itv but they're really nervous about it yeah that whole premise so i was expecting i watched um the first series of man about the house for the first time this week and i was expecting it for a lot longer for george and mildred to not know that he was there so itv said that the show had to go out after the 9pm watershed uh, and, but that might have harmed its chances of getting a bigger audience. So eventually they agreed that it was going to go out at half past eight, as long as it was naughty rather than dirty, which I think is uh, is basically what the show is, isn't it? It's quite cheeky, I think, and I think that's part of the charm of it. Naughty is the word, definitely, isn't it? Yeah. From, uh, from all the characters. Yeah, exactly. I think everyone gives as good as they get in that show, and I think that's part of the fun of it is... It never kind of strays too far from that line. And I think that's kind of what makes it still accessible. It's one of the few shows I think you can watch of that era that doesn't have a disclaimer at the beginning about sort of values of the time and things like that. Although I think there's a couple of bits that we probably will get from the TV show that maybe haven't stood the test of time, but I think we'll get there shortly. Um, Yeah, I think one of the surprising factors is that the BBC was a lot more liberal than ITV was at that time. A lot more risque. Uh, ITV was funded by advertising, so they had quite a strict, uh, quite a strict code of conduct that they had to stick to. I mean, I think if you watch things like Monty Python at that time, it was sort of a far more boundary pushing of what you could say and do on TV than a lot of the things on ITV were. Um, I think that one of the good things about it is that it avoids stereotypes at the time. Does the does the sitcom? You know, the two female characters, they're not just there to cook and clean and look after the Robin character. You know, he's the one who cooks. They're quite terrible at it. A lot of sitcoms around this time had women who were the homemakers and nothing else. You know, Chrissy and Joe, they're quite strong characters, particularly Chrissy. You know, they don't take any shit from the men in the show as well as Mildred. You know, with George, he's pretty much like the henpecked husband and it's, you know, like I say, it's one of the few sitcoms that doesn't suffer from certain like attitudes and language of the time. Certainly from that era as well. I think they they were making a concerted effort to try and push against that, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think 
kind of one of the most shocking bits is the opening credits of it where they're introducing the different characters so you've got robin on his moped not being able to start chris is trying to get on a bus and loses a shoe and sally tom set as joe walking down the street and there's a homeless man lifts playing the banjo lifts up his glasses stares at her ass and then we just have a shot of her ass for about five or six seconds with her name underneath i mean the joke is i assume that she's supposed to have such a great ass that even a uh, blind homeless man makes blind men see but the, but the fact the fact that that's in the opening credits yeah <laughs> stayed in the opening credits well yeah is, and that uh, and i think and that's something that i think we might get to about the film and the film trailer as well which I think is there's a, a big thing that happens in the movie that's included in the trailer and the remastered HD version of the trailer, which we watched prior to watching the film and the show. Um, but yeah, Man About the House was the last of the sitcom film adaptations made by Hammer, uh, which I think you're going to get to shortly, Rob, in the first half of the 1970s. There's nothing really about the production of the film but I think one of the most interesting aspects of it is how quickly it made it to the big screen. I mean, they made three series in two years and then a movie, you know, so it just shows what hit it was and how quickly it, it got there. This is kind of similar to what we were saying about Staggered, wasn't it? Is that, that we remember Staggered being released later into the run of and behaving badly on BBC, but actually, yeah, this film within, they must've started production on it within the, the, first series airing i guess yeah it, it makes you think that doesn't it because when was the first series what 1973 73 yeah. yeah so it must have been that much of a hit that during the first series they were they probably got the green light and let's do a movie there's people who are working on love thy neighbor and on the buses and they all were with hammer and had spin-offs so it might have been just a bit of a kind of gravy train for it yeah and i, I think there was they were knocking these episodes out very very quickly you know like those first three series were spread across two years basically uh i think it's like you said the, the film came out whilst the third series was on television right yeah and reading about the episodes of the tv show they were able to turn them around quite quickly because they were all sort of theater actors as well so they were used to performing in front of audiences and learning scripts at short notice so they were quite getting these things out in, in quite a quick run and it was basically the same three sets wasn't it you know it's the it's it's the flat it's george and mildred's flat and it's the the pub the duck yeah. the dirty dirty duck yeah i think that's the name of the pub it, it never really kind of goes too far from there does it really there's a f episode where robin plays football where you have a bit in the changing rooms but pretty much it sticks to those three locations well, as, as you foreshadowed, Guy, I wanted to talk a little bit about Hammer films because uh, I feel like I probably should have done when we were talking about um, lesbian vampire killers because obviously they the filmmakers said that they were heavily influenced by the Hammer horrors. Uh, and as this film was made by Hammer, I wanted to uh, do a tiny mini dive potted history into uh, Hammer. I'm sure there's many uh, other podcasts where you can have... Uh, a much more in-depth in uh, history lesson, but for our purposes and for the purposes of this film, uh, I just wanted to give you a brief whistle-stop tour. Hammer was founded in 1934 by producer James Carreras and comedian and theatre owner Will Hines. 
who after making his money as a jeweler and theater owner became a comedian. Uh, and he started a production company with Carreras calling it Hammer after his stage name, Will Hammer, which he gave himself after living in Hammersmith. Following so far, uh, they released and distributed a handful of films in the mid thirties. Uh, th those were distributed by Carreras's father's company exclusive, uh, but Hammer quickly went into administration soon after and then the war came along. After the Second World War, Carreras returned and teamed up with Wilhelm's son, Anthony, to revive Hammer as a quota-quickie making machine. Quota-quickie was a term uh, for cheap cinema schedule fillers. Uh, they, they bought the rights to some popular radio shows, including Dick Barton, Special Agent, and they realised that they could film on the cheap at country homes rather than using studios, and that became a bit of a hallmark of their work. After being forced to leave one of the homes that they rented, uh, 23 Dial Street, which is a home on the bank of the Thames near Maidenhead, uh, where they shot the case of the missing heiress in 1948, uh, they rented Oakley Court, uh, also in Maidenhead, and shot movies such as Man in Black and What the Butler Saw in the Late 40s and Early 50s there. Uh, they did this a few times, moving from kind of home to home before they um, settled on their most fondly remembered base called Down Place. Uh, which later became named, which later became known as Bray Studios when they remodeled and custom built most of it to shoot some of their uh, best known and most loved films there. The 1950s was the heyday of Hammer Horror, beginning with their adaptation of the BBC series Quatermass, The Quatermass Experiment, and uh, and its following sequels. After that came their iconic uh, Frankenstein and Dracula reboots, uh, constantly grappling with the BBFC for what they could get away with. Uh, the Curse of Frankenstein was the first of many of their films to be directed by Terence Fisher and star Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, who would go on to be synonymous with the studio. Curse of Frankenstein had six sequels and Dracula, which came in 1958, had eight sequels of diminishing returns in terms of uh, for both franchises in terms of their box office. Uh, but the original Hammer Dracula. Uh, broke box office records on both sides of the Atlantic and made Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing superstars. Um, and Lee and Cushing were in most of these uh, sequels as well. Um, these these were films that were endlessly parodied, not least in things like Carry On Screaming and then latterly, in, as we talked about before, Dr. Terrible's House of Horribles and, and I suppose in Lesbian Vampire Killers as well. Uh, Hammer, were, Hammer were beginning to attract some really big names for future projects, including people like Joan Fontaine, Bessie Davis, Oliver Reed in the 60s and 70s. And they tried their hands, tried their hand to varying degrees of success uh, in other genres. They didn't make that many comedies in the 50s and 60s. In the late 60s, success of more edgy kind of post-Hayes code Hollywood movies began to put the nail in the coffin. Sorry, pardon the pun of Hammer horror. Uh, the sophistication of films like Rosemary's Baby and the visceral nature of things like Night of the Living Dead when juxtaposed with the way Hammer horror films were beginning to look like self-parody, it made them turn their attention to uh, buying up uh, TV rights and making more TV adaptations. And this is where Man About the House comes in and films I've already mentioned, uh, things like That's Your Funeral, Nearest and Dearest, and you've guessed it. Was it Love Thy Neighbour? Love Thy Neighbour, these all came off the back of their first adaptation, which was On the Buses. Again, I think we're going to get to that. Uh, on the Buses amazingly was successful enough to have two sequels. Uh, and then in 1974 came the film we're talking about today, Man About the House. Um, after liquidation in 1979, Hammer had a few rebirths going in and out of production a number of times. 
Uh, the most successful restart came back in the late 2000s, where they had decent success with Women in Black starring Daniel Radcliffe. Uh, but Hammer will always be a British institution and its influence continues to live on, uh, perhaps no more apparent than when we get to League of Gentlemen Apocalypse, maybe. Yeah. No, definitely. Um, definitely seen a few of the Hammer movies as well, like back in the day, some of the, the what is it, the uh, Christopher Lee Dracula movies. And there was, one to wa- there was one I watched in the summer called The Damned. I think it was based on like Children of the Damned with Oliver Reed in his first screen role. Sort of a nice kind of, starts off as one of these sort of 50s, um, like teenage kind of rebellion movies and then becomes into like a weird sci-fi movie with Shirley Ann Field as well from Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, which was worth a watch. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how their, their legacy is is just for horror, but actually moving through the years and through the eras, they were able to kind of shapeshift and, and um, do the things, that make the sort of decisions that was going to create the most kind of short-term success. Mm. Uh, and then that's, that's what brought us these glut of 1970s um, 1970s uh, TV sitcom reboots on on the big screen. Before last week, Guy, had you seen Man About the House at any point? No, and that's the thing. I'd not seen Man About the House, and I think that's the interesting factor of it is I'd heard of it. I knew it was, you know, I knew it was obviously, I knew it was a sitcom. I'd seen Paula Wilcox in the smoking room and always felt that she was good in whatever she kind of came up in. And it was always one of those sitcoms that I think was supposed to be important a bit like kind of like the liver birds i always heard about that and you know kind of the relationship between men and women like living together who weren't in sort of weren't married or in like a relationship and things like that but i've never seen the show and i think you automatically assume that it's going to be one of these sort of bawdy kind of a bit benny hill or a bit you know like that kind of thing so that was my sort of preconception coming into it what about you well, as we've heard, has a lot of its roots in, in Benny Hill. And I think obviously there are some aspects of that. Like I said at the end of last episode, I was filled with dread about this because, you know, just the the name and about the house just kind of reminds you of, of kind of lesser sitcoms of that time. And actually, I was pleasantly surprised that every episode is on uh, ITVX. Mm. Uh, and so I was able to sit and watch pretty much the whole first series and was pleasantly surprised by it. I was actually laughing out loud at quite a lot of it. Yeah, I think that the show is really funny, and I think that's one of the things that sort of surprised me the most is how well it holds up now. You know, you watch it, and I think it is really funny. And there's several times during the first episode where I was laughing, and then watching the film, I was a bit, I mean, don't want to give away what I thought, but I was a bit like, I'm enjoying this far more. This half an hour has given me far more laughs than an hour and a half of this film. I think it goes back to what you were saying about the characters of Chrissy and Joe as well, that like both have quite a lot of um quite a lot of agency and like particularly Chrissy, you know, like she's her character's supposed to be quite heavily politically involved, you know, with her uh, anti police poster that she's got on the on the back of the door with the episode where they where they think they've been burgled. Yeah. Um and she has some of the best she has some of the best lines as well. Some of the best writing is for her and for for youth the Joyce as well, mm. which which brings me on to the fact that I I had seen I had seen a couple of episodes of George and Mildred, and I I was familiar with those characters and aware of those characters. Um, so actually, yeah, but like, maybe I, I I was less aware of, of Man About the House, more aware of 
George and Mildred. Um, but yeah, certainly after watching those few episodes kind of made me a little bit more willing to, when we finished recording for Staggered, I was like, oh God, it's just the sense of duty of having to watch this crap. <laughs> but but yeah, like I say, pleasantly surprised by the show. So um, it's going to be good to get stuck into the film, Guy. Yeah, should we get into it? After this, let's do it. It's a fight to the finish when land speculators want to tear down every house in the street. Did you get all the houses? Almost. Small problem with sitting tenants at number six. Troublemakers. The battle of the petitions is on. Listen, what's the name of the lady who lives in number four? Oh, Miss Bird? Yeah, sir. You're not going to go in here alone, are you? Well, I've got to get a signature, haven't I? Best of luck, mate. Keep your legs crossed. And it's every man for himself. Would you like to see what I do? Oh, no, thank you. No, not really. I'm a potter. Oh, yes. I make erotic soup bowls. Ooh. Oh, that's very... Oh, good God. The Man About the House from 1974. We begin with the opening title sequence with an illustration of the cast. And instead of the brilliant theme tune that we get with the TV show... We have a syrupy ballad, which is basically giving a, a synopsis of the TV show, really, about about a man about the house living with two girls and some quite ropey, um, not puns, but links there, I think, with uh, a man about the house living with two work girls. There is, there is not a sniff of the theme tune, and the theme tune is one of the best things about the film. So from the start, they, OK, we've got a specially commissioned theme song that's fine but i would hope that there would be some theme tune inflections into the score and at some point we're gonna you know if that film if they were reviving man about the house today in film version they would do something clever with the score and there'd be theme tune inflections or they'd do a brand new version of the theme tune Mm. (laughs) get 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 someone like calvin harris or something to do a (laughs) a man about the house remix but instead, we get, yeah, this kind of plot explaining kind of ballad that's a little bit twee and a bit crap, which is a shame because the cartoon pictures of the cast are really good. I really like that. Mm. that that's quite carry on and that's quite film postery. But it's, um, yeah, yeah. I, I, we, I mean, we both had to do some digging to find out who sung that song because she's not credited. Yeah. We both thought it was it was Paula Wilcox. I've already forgotten her name. Jane Christie. Jane Christie, right. Okay, and so they didn't even think enough of the job that she'd done, which is fine, to credit her on the opening or closing credits. Mm. I just found it in a YouTube comment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I found it on IMDb. I mean, I don't even know if that song got released as like a single or anything, as like a tie-in, I doubt it. I mean, she's not even been credited on the film. It was written by Annie Farrow. We begin with a shot of an exterior of the houses where the apartments are. We can hear the voices of Chrissy and Joe. Can you put a bit more hot water in that bath? It's cold. So we're kind of getting this idea that the three, you know, are sharing a bath. That's that's quite indicative of the show as well. That, you know, all, all that voiceover with the three of them where you think they're in the bath together. And of course they're not. They're just <laughs> sharing the bathroom. But that, that, opens with a extremely shaky crane shot which yeah. uh, doesn't doesn't fill you with much confidence about how the film's going to be shot or directed yeah you know we talked about budget earlier i think there wasn't a lot spent 
So Joe asks Robin to hurry up. He's in the foreground, shaving in the mirror. She's in the background. She's got bubbles that are covering everything but her head. Robin says that he's closed, that he closed his eyes and while he shaves. And then we have a gag where she asked him if his eyes are closed. He opens them up to say they were closed. That's a sort of another example of the gag. So she gets out of the bath, wraps the towel around herself, and Robin dries himself on the towel. She's not impressed. Robin offers his services if she wants a hand drying herself, as he can do it by touch alone. Joe tells him he'll be lucky. They, they all look. My my first takeaway straight away from this is that they all look much better on film. Yes. You know, like so. Usually, it's quite jarring seeing you know like sitcom characters suddenly shot on film. But actually, this is doing them all massive favors. Mm. <laughs> I think just because that you know uh, the, that old uh, sitcom footage just just looks shite, doesn't it? Yeah. And, uh, you know, this this looks it looks properly like a film, and they they've done a kind of. Um, reverse peep show with it haven't they and then that mm. they've they've found a location to look like the set of the flat rather than the other way around yeah exactly i think it looks really nice i think they look great i think the the blu-ray transfer as well is is really good um job that they've done i think it was network who who'd, who've done it and that's really nice and it makes when i watch the sitcom it makes me wish it was on film because they all look so good and like you said and it's such a shame that it was filmed on like dodgy videotape rather than on film because it would have been so much better i th- i think it would <clears throat> i think it would lose something if the, if the sitcom was on film now obviously the other thing because this opening scene is is kind of scripted very much like one of the episodes obviously the first thing you notice is there's no laughter track mm. and so actually those jokes seem a lot shitter and fall <laughs> a lot flatter yeah. That's, that's the odd thing about a studio sitcom, isn't it? Is that even, even, you know, like even ropier jokes will make you laugh with a with a laughter track, and it's just something you notice straight away that these sitcom jokes aren't working on the big screen, and it, but it doesn't it doesn't really stay like that in terms of how it's scripted. It doesn't stay sitcommy, but actually, I think that's a bad thing. I, I'd rather the sitcom jokes all the way through with no laughter track. Yeah, uh, but. Again, skipping it might be skipping ahead a little bit too much. I think it, we, we get to a point where the the plot's intruding on it far too much. Yeah, I, I, I agree. The music for this scene is bizarre as well because you've got while they're in the bathroom, you've got a bit of incidental music, and then he's supposed to turn on the radio, and it's music that sounds like the score, and so that's really confusing. It yeah. all seems a bit haphazard. Yeah, I'd agree. I think. There's a lot in this film that that feels like that. Like you mentioned, the crane shot earlier, and 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 that, and then we've got this scene coming up where Chris is cooking the eggs, and Robin complains that it's eggs again, and turns out it's Joe's turn to cook breakfast. And like this whole scene, I found quite bizarre because in the in the sitcom, he he's the chef, he's at culinary school, he's learning to cook, he does all the cooking. They cook a little bit, and it's always a bit of a joke that they can't cook, so he ends up doing it. And I think this is one of my kind of problems with the film early on is his character feels very different to the one in the sitcom. He feels a lot more kind of chauvinistic and a lot more just ruled by trying to get into the girl's knickers. But he says lines like, it's part of the female's function to provide food and that he's not a male chauvinist and Chris is 
disagrees and he says well you know what would you know about it you're only a woman and i don't know if those are meant to be gags but they just come across as a bit crass again like these when gags like this happen in the tv show the the laughter tracks etc give you a bit of a kind of cue as to who your who your sympathies should be with here but it's like none of it is kind of commented on here so he'll say something really misogynistic and then that's it. There might be a, she might answer back or she might not. That becomes a lot more egregious later on in a specific scene later on. Well, yeah, because it is like why why are they putting up with this? Would be the kind of thing. If if the sitcom was like this, you'd be like, well, why would you live with this person? Because he's just a complete ass. But I think, like you said, it it balances its way out later on in the film, which we'll get to. So. Yeah, we have the, we have this joke about him wanting to fix the lock on the bathroom door and then he offers to remove it from the girl's bedroom door. Instead, he says it with a wink. So again, there's so much going on, but at the same time, there's so little going on. that My notes are really extensive, but I don't really feel like much happens in it. Um, I have put, yeah, this version of Robin is a lot creepier than in the TV show. Definitely. I, I, I've made that observation maybe slightly later on, but... um. Coming up, we've got a uh, scene. So they seem to swap out John Robbins, the director, for William Friedkin for a bit coming up. <laughs> yeah. Or John, John Landis, maybe. Yeah, John Landis. Yeah, we, we end up with going in the slapstick direction. This car pulls up outside and toots its horn. Mildred, the landlady, who we know obviously from George and Mildred and obviously from the sitcom, is out collecting bottles. The man in the car blows her a kiss. She comes in the in the flat. So George, husband's obviously been sleeping on the sofa. He's having a cigarette. She tells him, you know, Sigs, there'll be the death of you. Have another one, which is quite a nice gag. Um, I mean, I think their relationship works really well in this film, and that just carries on, and you can see why it became a spin-off. Yeah, the the George and Mildred uh, dynamic is one of the best things about the show, and some of the better written elements of, of the film as well. Yeah. So now we're in the car with the driver who's basically driving like a lunatic. It's it's well, like this a scene is Larry. From, yeah, Larry. So it's like a scene from Blues Brothers is this. Um and then you have Chris so Chrissy and Robin are getting a lift off Larry, Larry who's Robin's mate, who we kind of find out a bit more later on. Um Chrissy keeps saying lines like, Keep your eyes on the road and struck trying to put my knee into second. So got you know gags like that that's kind of he is in the program as well larry isn't he he's in that the football episode that we were talking about yeah he's in that and from my reading he becomes a regular character i think in the second series he moves into the apartment block in the attic yes that's it because that, that becomes a plot point later on doesn't it yeah that's right so um yeah, Robin says, so as a driving, Robin says he's got a summer job working as a chef in a little restaurant that's going to pay him well. And he tells Larry that he can get him a job as a waiter. And then we have this bit where the drive, where Larry takes the car onto the pavement and you got Chrissy going, keep your eyes on the uh, pavement, which I quite like that joke. I thought delivered quite well. Paul Wilcox doing the hard work there. Um, when they get to the. Um... Uh, to the kitchen. I love his lecturer, <laughs> played by a guy called Aubrey Morris. Uh, Mr. Trick. <laughs> oh, it's so over the top. Um, 
this guy is uh, he's in the the Wicker Man in the Clockwork Orange, but then he's also he has this amazing kind of later career in um, in America, where he's in things like My Girl Two and Boy Meets World. Like he goes on to be in a load of American sitcoms. Oh really? Boy Meets World, Tales from the Crypts, and then he's in he's in three episodes of Deadwood as well. So this this, this Aubrey Morris character has gone on to have a, a great career before he died in 2015. That's yeah, I had no idea. I remember but him in. Literally- Remember him in Clockwork Orange and a Wicker Man, but didn't realise he'd had such a varied career later on. So that's interesting in itself. Um, yeah, they dropped Chrissy off outside Maidervale tube station. As someone who lived in mm-hmm. London, is was that known to you? Not not an area of London I was familiar with. In fact, I, I wrote that. I think I uh, early on living in London, I went to Maidervale a couple of times. I might have done a couple of shoots and stuff there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, it's not. I was quite looking forward to some seeing a bit of London on this and uh, it was all bits I didn't recognise unfortunately. Ah, oh, fair enough um, yeah, so the boys carry on driving, Robin tells him not to rush as they're not late Robert, uh, Larry disagrees and says if they shared a flat with two girls he wouldn't have to get out of bed in the morning again, just one of these um, Robin says they've put a new bolt on the bedroom door so I can't get out and nice call back to the joke earlier so now we're at the cooking college yeah, I put that you didn't really need this scene. So as much as you enjoyed it, Rob, I was like, we don't need this scene. I, I just enjoyed this this Aubrey Morris uh, guy, yeah, with his over-the-top, uh, yeah. But you're right, it's superfluous. I was going to say, with his 70s comb-over and horn-rimmed glasses, he is the epitome of a middle-aged 1970s man. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one thing this scene does do is, is lead us into Bill Maynard, a.k.a. Greengrass from Heartbeat. I think he's one of the funnier characters in this. This is one of my favourite scenes in the film, is this scene. Um, yeah, I was just, sorry, I was just going to say, th- this feels like another um, episode of our Do You Remember the 90s uh, <laughs> segment. Yeah. With, uh, yeah, uh, Bill Maynard, who played Greengrass in Heartbeat. Um, yeah, so we have this weird cut, don't we? Because this scene with the teacher is very short. He kind of tickles one of the girls under the chin in a suitably creepy way of all these sort of attractive young women who are also part of the culinary school and then you've got robin tripp who's also there the only male and then we have a transition um as he's being asked what makes a good kitchen you know he's listing off these things and then we see the opposite of this absolutely awful disgusting shithole of a kitchen and this is Robin's job in the nice little restaurant that he was telling us about. And I put a scruffy looking man in a dirty vest is preparing food. It's Bill Maynard, Greengrass from it's Heartbeat. Greengrass. And he um, he starts off strong with an impression of uh, Tommy Cooper. And, um, and he said at one point, he says, I'm going for a Jimmy. Can you cop a hold of this? Which uh, makes me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i just put has he always been old yeah yeah he's pretty old in that as well isn't he? Yeah. yeah i only knew him from uh from heartbeat but yeah he's excellent in this yeah so the way to uh larry so larry's got a job working at the restaurant and asked for an ice cream and bill made out i called him scruff bag pulls one out from the freezer and the customer wants a chocolate one and asks if he can swap it and he just goes abracadabra and says about putting curry powder on it well that's that's his tommy cooper impression isn't it yeah 
which I'll just... I, I was, I was going to do. I was going to try and do one then, and I'm not going to. Ah, we're all missing out there. Yeah, so you'll <laughs> never know the difference. Put curry powder on it, which I enjoyed, the Tommy Cooper. Um, yeah, and then he starts telling some story about trying to convince two nurses to play a strip poker with him on a boat while um, he's covering fish in batter. And this is the bit where Robin says, well, you know, um, you know, maybe you want to try a dash of uh, garlic salt in the batter. You're not a puffer, yeah? And he said, and he also says, garlic salt in a very, uh, if Peter Kay hasn't seen Man About the House, the movie, I'd be very surprised. Yeah. So Robin says no. And Bill Meadows like, thank God for that. Uh, he then goes back into his strip poker story with two of the National Health's finest. And then we cut to Chrissy on the bus. And this was a bit that kind of confused me. So Chrissy's on the bus. Robin gets on and sits with her. And I just in my head was like, oh, yeah, they've just arranged to do this. But this is before mobile phones, obviously. So how hard would it be to arrange to meet someone on a bus? I don't know that they have. I think he's just happened to have gotten on the same bus home as her. God, it's so that was my reading of it anyway. Mm. Well, because This is where the plot starts coming in, though, guys. And she's talking about how they're pulling down all the cinemas, which... Uh, that made me a little bit sad. Yeah. Putting down cinemas in London. Something yeah, that's still happening. Yeah. Um, yeah, and he starts asking her if um, she's ever played cards before with a wry smile, which uh, I think we can all see that this is going to become a bit of a plot point. Yeah, well, it isn't, it isn't, is it? It's, it's like a B plot, him trying to get the two of them to play strip poker the whole time or, or strip various other games. And it's just completely, it's not funny from the start. Uh, it's not, not even the kind of the offensive nature or lack thereof. It's just, just crap. It's just a crap idea. And they keep flogging it. It's, yeah, that B plot all seems very rushed. Yeah, I mean, that's the issue, isn't it, for me? It's like when Bill Maynard re- references it in the in the kitchen scene, it feels like it's just a joke about what a kind of sleazebag he is and what a kind of, you know, as a character plot point. I didn't think that then it was going to be part of Robin's mission throughout the rest of the film to try and get Joe and Chrissy to play the game or various incarnations of the game, basically to get the kit off. And especially when, you know, she seems to be quite up for getting off with him anyway, doesn't she, at one point? And then yeah. he, and he continues after all that. None of that makes any sense. Anyway, we're, I'm getting ahead of myself here. This is where we first start seeing the signs when they're on the bus as well, the signs for Spiros as well, the, uh, the uh, building development company. And I'm thinking, hello, are they setting up a uh, Johnny Foreigner baddie here? <laughs> but they're, but they're not. They're not. No, that's it. Important to, to point out. They do not do Just that. Happens to have the name Spiros. Yeah. Uh, Robin picks. Uh, sorry. Robin brings up playing poker again and how people are being forced to entertain at home with cards. They walk to the flat where a middle-aged man in a trilby has a map on the bonnet of a car. He says good afternoon and tips his hat to them. George is reading a letter from the developer who wants to buy the house, but Mildred is having none of it. He says that the blonde next door with the poodle says he could make a lot of money from it. And Mildred is phoning the neighbours to have a meeting of the Residents' Association. It's amazing how often in TV and film this storyline gets rolled out. It, you know, like um, communities coming together to stop developers buying 
houses and buying that. It's a trope I've seen in a lot of films and TV programmes, and it's not done particularly well here. It's just, yeah, the the plot really drags this film down. Yeah, because it's so, it it's just so uninteresting. Yeah, it never feels like they commit to this either. They never go all in on it. It just, again, it feels just like another strand that's running where you don't really get a lot of the jokes. I think until later where, I don't think it's spoilers, when Arthur Lowe shows up, I think Arthur Lowe's one of the best things in it. For me, Like he's just naturally funny and those sort of little bits. But up until then, it's just sort of an excuse to have little vignettes that we'll get to that are kind of very stereotypical of the era. Yeah, absolutely. At this point, we go back into the uh, flat, don't we? And we see some lovely purple wallpaper and uh, Robin wearing a Snoopy jumper, which I really want. In fact, I'd quite like quite a few of the uh, clothes in this uh, in this film. You're going to start modelling yourself after Robin Tripp then. Not a bad man to... <laughs> um, let's, not go, let's not go that far. <laughs> I was going to say, not a bad man to model yourself after, but I think we need to uh, retract that I'd statement. A very bad man to model, model yourself on, particularly the film version. Well, yeah, exactly. And I think we're going to find out a little bit more about what a bad man he is in the next part of the film because he's on the sofa trying to cuddle up to Chrissy, who rolls her eyes. There's a lot of eye rolling in this movie from the female characters. It's all a bit uncomfortable at this point. I, I'm kind of I'm trying to work out what it is he's drinking as well. He's pouring into a sherry sherry glass, uh, so I'm assuming that he's drinking sherry. And so oh, that's very 1970s of you. But then later on, he kind of scoffs at the idea of having a sherry at Georgia Mildred's flat. So I don't know yeah. <laughs> what what is he drinking, and it, you know, and he's drinking quite a lot of it as well during the day. That's a good point. Maybe he's just a bit of a snob. I don't know. I don't know, but yeah, so Robin Tripp, sherry drinker or not, please let us know if anyone knows. Um, he says there must be something better to do than the rubbish that's on TV. Chris says that he can't have her body because it's already been booked to do the washing up. Uh, this feels a little bit more like the TV show. Um, you know, I wish we'd have a little bit more character development rather than just innuendo, which is always seem to be getting. I'll tell you what's not like the TV show in these interior scenes, and I can't believe I'm saying this because you'd think that this would be something that would be just inherently better on a film than on a 1970s sitcom. But the, the audio edits for all the interior stuff, very kind of uh, dodgy and jumpy and a mm. bit all over the place, a little bit borderline Garth Marenghi-esque. <laughs> yeah, it's all a little ropey, isn't it? All that stuff. Yeah, it's not great. Um, Robin makes a drink, and then we see a pack of cards on the sideboard where the bottles are. So he messes around with the cards. He puts an extra jumper on, puts an extra jacket, and then he asks Chrissy where Joe is. She's in the bathroom. Don't know what she's been doing all this time. Um, and yeah, and why does Chrissy know and Robin doesn't when they were in the came into the flat at the same time? That was something else that I made. How long's Joe been in there for? So yeah, that. Doesn't really make sense. So he tells Joe they're going to have a game of cards, strip poker, they need a third player, and then he lies saying that Chrissy said Joe won't play because she's too much of a prude. 
Um, he leaves the bathroom, says the same thing to Chrissy. So she says that she's right and asks him if he wants to help with the washing up. He doesn't. So Joe confronts Chrissy. They realise that Robin is playing them off against each other and then Robin removes the extra clothes. Um, and then Chrissy tells him that the girl's ready to play the strip poker game. So he rushes, puts back on the extra clothes and then <laughs> they work out the, what the betting is. So um, Robin bets a sock which is the equivalent of half a tight. And then uh, Chrissy bets his sock and her skirt. And Robin says, I'll raise you your skirt with my trousers. Eyebrow raised. Roger Moore would be proud. Well, before all that, you have the the element of the hustle where she's uh, she says, oh, shall I do the uh, handing out of the cards? And he goes, oh, I think you mean the dealing. And she says, yes, that. Then cut to some blokes big fat hairy fingers with painted big painted fingernails doing some croupier style shuffling yeah and uh and card tricks and this is supposed to be her yeah i uh yeah i i can't believe i missed that but it definitely sticks in my head because i remember thinking those that paula wilcox's hands <laughs> no yeah someone who obviously bites their fingers <laughs> yeah they're very short nails stubby yeah. fingernails pe- painted pink it's it's a man's hand yeah um and then we're into cut with george and mildred watching a film she talks about a soldier that she went out with years back during the war called arthur mulgrove she went out with him back in the day yeah this seems really strangely edited as well this uh the the back and forth between george and mildred Mm. while the strip poker's going on some odd choices of uh of edits that things that look like jump jump cuts almost yeah. Going from angle to similar angle. Yeah, I think there's quite a bit in this. There's, there's, there's something I noticed later on that was really was a strange shot, and I think there's quite a bit of this. Um, yeah, the film's made her all, all aroused, and she comes on to George, and he makes his excuses, uh, talking to the people upstairs about a residence meeting. So we're back in the flat. Robin is taking his shirt off. He's not doing very well at the game, and as Chrissy is still fully clothed, he's down to his underpants, which he bets. And is Joe allowed to fold on every single hand? I mean, I've played a little bit of poker, and it, how you can't keep folding without betting. It doesn't work like that. Yeah, she does. It, she yeah. folds every every single hand. Every single I mean, hand. And... Why am I why am I picking holes in this in, <laughs> in this terrible B plot? I don't know, but it's um, yeah, it's a good point. Um, yeah, and then I put Chrissy bets her shoes, and Robin wins. And I put, if Tarantino was directing this, it would be completely different. Yes, true. <laughs> I mean, you could say that about most things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not a single shot of a feet for the people who enjoy that sort of uh, thing. So they're missing yes, yeah. missing out on that. Sorry, um, I see what you're getting at. Yeah, that's, yeah. that was my subtle hint. <laughs> of, uh, so, of subtle that. That, so subtle that I didn't know what the fuck you were talking about. <laughs> Chrissy bets her blouse on the next hand. Robin loses, the doorbell goes, and he grabs the table cloth like a matador and pulls it off the table and covers his, his naked body. So, yeah, like you said, it's George. Talk about a residence meeting. And now we're in the pub at the committee meeting where Robin offers Chrissy's services um, to head up the committee. And that pub looks awful. It looks like a really horrible pub. They really try in the sitcom to make the pub look crap, but because mm. it's a set, it kind of 
why is this pub? Looks really, really quite grim. But what doesn't look grim in this scene is the way Yutha Joyce is dressed. She looks fucking ace, and I really like her. Uh, really like her look in this scene. Yeah. The uh, the big uh, red and white striped uh, collars and her um, her jacket that she's got on. It's a good look. Yeah, the the fashion in this movie is is probably one of the better aspects of it. I think that we have very kind of early 70s it's really good um yeah so then we have this whole thing about the committee and then the towels come off the bar taps and everyone rushes to the bar george talks about the good old days of the blitz when all the bombs were raining down i did, I did enjoy that i thought that was a funny bit but there's some um there's some parallels to be drawn with the character of uh george roper and your kind of modern day uh boomer war glorifiers who were all, of course, born after the Second World War and loved to go on about uh, how everyone was, uh, how everyone was less woke <laughs> in those days. And uh, yeah, I, don't, I mean, this character—he is supposed to be a loathsome character, and the, the joke—he is constantly the butt of the jokes. But as we're gonna, as we're gonna get to maybe a bit later on, that isn't always so sure with some of the things he says. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because I think in the sitcom, he even says how much he likes Enoch Powell, which is, I think, is meant to give you an idea of what an awful person he is. And I've put, but unlike to, unlike the boomers of today, George actually saw some shit. <laughs> <laughs> he did. He, he was an air raid warden, wasn't he? House. Yeah, there we go. Um, and I did laugh. Actually, probably the only bit that I laughed out loud about was. Uh, the bit where he's talking about during the days of the war where you used to get a bit of meat that long in your ration and he does that with it <laughs> you remember that don't you Mildred yeah that's what I used to get she says <laughs> that made me laugh yeah it's the, the, there's a few good bits I have to say there's a few funny bits but not this because Larry Robin's mate shows up again moaning about the lack of sex he's been getting it's been two months and I'm about to go blind it's all very nudge, nudge, wink, wink, say no more, is all uh, Larry's bits. And the, the, the way, and that bit kind of leads into some scenes where Larry goes off with Joe and um, Robin goes off with Chrissy. And I'm wondering if I've missed some series two and three plot developments whereby mm. Robin and Chrissy have some kind of uh, history because suddenly they're lying on the couch together as if they've done this before. And I'm thinking, it's all very set up in the first series that he, you know, nothing's ever going to happen between them. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, you've not seen any more than I have, so you can't, probably can't answer that question. But there seems to be a lot of assumed knowledge. I think they were just hoping for getting the the kind of numbers of people that saw, that would watch this programme regularly on the TV to go to the cinema, mm. basically. Because it, it would have like 18, 20 million viewing figures, wouldn't it? Yeah. So, you know, obviously that's going to be a good box office turnout if even half those people go and see it. Mm, I mean, but what's what's interesting is the whole, you know, kind of conceit is that he wants to have sex with them, Robin, but he never does. And and that is something that I was thinking, because all of a sudden they're in this next scene, they're very kind of cuddly and they're lying on the sofa together, kind of cuddling and canoodling and whatever. And it sort of comes a little bit out of the blue, particularly after the strip poker scene that we just had. You know, where he's obviously, again, like we said earlier, he's the idiot. He's been made to look a fool. 
Um, but yeah, like I said, we have this scene where Larry asks Joe if she wants to, you know, go for a drive. Eyebrows, eyebrows. It's all very, like I said, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, say no more. And he's very eyebrows, is Larry, when he's saying these lines. Eyebrows are going into overdrive. It, it, it was funny watching this today because last night I watched Zodiac and they're, <laughs> they're going out for a lovely drive to the lake and I keep expecting some guy to come up over the hill with a fucking uh, uh, a full-on uh, full suit and stick them up and tie them up and stab the shit out of them. But uh, no, that doesn't happen. Just some crap jokes about fish and chips and a early anti-trans joke. Oh, I must have missed the anti-trans he joke. He says, well... Anti he says I was bought. It, it's basically it's a way of him trying to oh. uh, trying to shagger. Basically, he says I was born a woman and I've recently had the operation and I haven't used it yet. Can I test it out on you? Basically, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, I've, I do remember that now. And it's like Jesus, Christ, like even even your most lumbering idiot would never use that as a shit chat up line, would they? Yeah, know. it's so shit. Yeah, it takes a for a drive just a drive mind eyebrows eyebrows robin says that this will give him and chrissy the chance to go back to the flat and kind of get it together and that's the petition again lots of eyebrows going over nudge nudge wink wink say no more so now in the flat chrissy is at the typewriter and robin is pouring them both a glass of wine and that's when robin starts going to chrissy tells them that it's different for girls they need coaxing chatting up and he says that he can't chat her up because he cares for her so again he feels very manipulative does all this and also, and then he alludes to he's not interested in her unless she's telling him no. So, what's this saying? Robin has a rape fetish. There's never, there's never any kind of pointing towards that in the in the sitcom. It's all a bit. They're trying to take a bit of an edgier turn, but in a really crass, ill thought out way. Yeah. I mean, even even for the seventies. Yeah, and I think that's one of the problems of the film is that it doesn't have the nine o'clock watershed to hold this stuff back. They've got free reign to go off and make these sort of jokes and it really doesn't work. You lose some of the sweetness of the sitcom in that. It's low-budget British films version of um, uh, established Hollywood directors not knowing what to do after the uh, Hayes Code is, uh, yeah. is a thing, isn't it? And not having that to push against this the program benefits from having the watershed and seeing what they can get away with and having the double entendres. Yeah. But this this doesn't have that problem. Well, it does with the certification, but it can be a bit racier, but they, they don't choose to do that in a very interesting way at all. No, not at all. So you have this romantic lounge music starts playing and after his speech of trying to woo her, um, he says... How am I doing? With a laugh. Wasn't sure if this was ad-libbed or not because it felt a little bit kind of a little bit more. I don't know. There's something about it just didn't feel quite right that, with the tone. That of whole this scene, film. yeah, that whole scene is weird because it's it's a dynamic that we again I can only stress that we've only seen the first series each, but it, it's we have never seen them in that position before, and mm. that's strange. Um, and nothing about that scene, about their what we know about their characters, rings true in any way. Yeah. Uh, and then we 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 have um, Joe and Larry come back through the door. 
Ah, actually, no. Before that, we have the hilarious women drivers, a eh? joke where um, <laughs> Joe says she's going to drive home and reverses the car into the lake. And now we're back in the flat with Robin and Chrissy, who are on the couch canoodling. He's like kissing her neck. Has she got drawings from of Woody from Toy Story on her on her jeans? It looked very. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I didn't notice. Yeah, but I, I did notice it, but I, I'd kind of just written it off. Yeah. No, she yeah. has. Yeah. Joe comes in and says, I've got frog spawn in my bra. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. Which, how would you know? But yeah. Um, yeah. And Chrissy, before that, Chrissy says that, you know, she wants to talk. They've known each other a long time and she thinks that he fancies her. And if he does like her and care for her, then it's okay. And then he feels like he's got too much responsibility. And then they soon get over this and start snogging and the music swirls and that's when Joe and Larry burst in soaking wet through, um, ruining the moment. Yeah, so they kick Larry out and then we cut to the sign outside the neighbours' houses that have been acquired by Spirus Holdings and Larry's car's been retrieved from the lake and Robin and the girls are armed with clipboards and their petitions. Larry apologises to everyone and I just put, I don't like Larry, but I don't think he's done much wrong in this bit apart from being a creep and driving like a bellend. Maybe he's got his comeuppance, though. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, maybe maybe it's that. Well, we're also about to see the introduction of Miss Bird. Yes. <laughs> I mean, fucking hell, this character. I mean, it, this is now becoming like Confessions of a... Uh, well, Confessions of a Milkman, first of all. We've got <laughs> Mike Baldwin from Coronation Street turning up as a milkman who uh, says to Robin, um, I haven't got time to shag Miss Bird today, so... Uh, You'll have to do it. And then Bill Pertwee <laughs> comes along and says that he doesn't want to shag Miss Bird either. <laughs> Again, paraphrasing. This whole uh, Miss Bird thing uh, ends with another stat rake joke about a scout. The Boy Scout comes to her door, says, it's Bob a job week. Is there anything I can do for you? And she goes, looking at him up and down and goes, why don't you come back next year, son? At least Miss Bird has got standards. And she also makes erotic soup bowls, which we'll find out a bit more later on. And then we have this bit where Chrissy and Joe are trying to get petitions off people in the street uh, about this uh, housing development. Um, it's all so ones. tedious, this stuff, isn't it? Trying to get the right amount of, uh, of, petition, of uh, uh, signatures for their petition. Yeah. And it's then, just... It's not a very interesting storyline. No, uh, yeah, and that's like you said earlier is where the film starts to like sag a bit. Um, I put we've got our second Dad's Army cameo. Arthur Lowe sat behind a desk in a modern, for the time, office, flanked by an attractive girl. We had a classic um, two-way conversation gag going on with... An attractive girl, uh, an attractive girl, the only, apart from Rudolph Walker, the only black actor in the entire film who doesn't say anything. Oh, no, yeah, that's she, true. She's oh, no, it we three have... times, I think, and she's just standing there, like her head's cut off for most of it. Yeah, she's always behind Arthur Lowe. And, <laughs> oh, we did, we had um, a black lady with uh, children as well when Joe and uh, Chrissy are doing the petition as well. Yeah, you're right, yeah. But she does not add anything to the plot. She's just got a lot of shopping and kids and looks a bit stressed. So to, to the relief of me, anyway, uh, the character of uh, Spiros turns out not to be uh, somebody doing a horrible Greek accent, <laughs> but, it, but, it's, but it's Arthur Lowe with brilliant glasses. I want his glasses. Yeah. All, I... all, of, 
all of his scenes must have been done in a day. Yeah, I think so. I, yeah, they've all got curtains drawn as well, haven't they, as well? So, But he's he's brilliant in it. I think he's Arthur Lowe. So Robin is cooking in an apron with a brown knickers on it. This is the same apron from the sitcom, so it's nice to have a little call back to that. And then the girls come back to the house. Robin is fuming because the girls are late home. This felt more like the sitcom in him adopting the kind of traditional sort of housewife role um, to their characters who, you know, are like kind of don't really care. And Chrissy says that they should have bought him some flowers. She's in double denim, I put. <laughs> um, yeah, and he's making them uh, Lebanese cucumber soup, which I think sounds quite nice. And then there's a your classic uh, cold soup joke. Yeah, and it was it was this bit where I put, did they cross the line in the next shot? Because there's a weird thing where they go from the kitchen and then you have a weird cut where it looks completely different. Something looks really off about it, where they're sat and then he's over the table serving that, the meal. That happens, that happens a couple of times and it happens with George and Mildred as well. Yeah. that. One... Uh, speaking of which, they're downstairs making jokes about... Uh, Reproductive problems. Yeah, I also put that Joe's eating soup out of Mrs. Bird's erotic bowl, which you realise mm. and discuss, so nice callback. See, when you said there's, that's going to feature later on, I'd forgo- I'd completely, yeah, I'd forgotten about it. I was t- too busy going, that's Mike Baldwin, isn't it? Yeah! <laughs> I didn't even recognise it was Mike Baldwin, so I'm gutted. George wants to sell the house, but Mildred won't have it. The girls go to see Mrs. Bird. There's newspapers and milk piled up outside the door. And out comes the man from Spyros. And Mr. Pluthero. Is that what Ms. his Bird's name was? Had, Miss Bird has had Mr. Pluthero. He looks very much worse for wear, doesn't he? Mr. Pluthero. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I did like the gag of the milk bottles piled up in the newspapers. I think that's quite a funny bit. And then Robin speaks to the lady with the poodle, who's played by Amy McDonald, who was sort of a very big star within comedy in the 60s. She was in things like At Last the 1948 Show with John Cleese and uh, Tim Brooke Taylor and Graham Chapman and um, Mike Feldman, people like that. Um, and then quite a lot of movies at this time. Um, she it turns out she doesn't own the house. It's a gentleman friend, but he doesn't live there, silly. Um, Chrissy goes to drop the signatures off that she's got because they've reached a thousand and outside the buildings are a poster for Sir Edmund Weir, man of the people who's doing a peace sign. And I think that gentleman friend joke is just a throwaway thing at the time, you know, as if to say, yes, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a kept woman and uh, someone else's husband is paying for me to live in this flat, but actually it pays off straight away. And it turns out that Sir Edmund is the David Meller, of 1974 that's right um yeah chrissy wants him to accept the petition for the six edwardian houses being knocked down for an office block he says it's impressive but he doesn't know what she expects him to do about it but it turns out that he's the president of the preserved london society so once he hears the name of the street he seems a lot more interested and he takes a petition from chrissy charming little row of houses they can't pull that down he says so Sir Edmund makes a phone call. Amy McDonald answers it, the blonde lady with the poodle. So he's a sugar daddy who goes by Poopsie. And that made me want to throw up a bit. <laughs> um, um, speaking of things making you want to throw up, George Roper is now clipping his toenails. That was awful. 
The previous toenails, and then we have some uh, have some newspaper gags. Uh, them reading verbatim what's in the Guardian, and of course, it's all got spelling mistakes. In it. Yeah, I did quite enjoy and, that. Yeah, and Robin is enjoying page three as well. <laughs> of course, he is. Yeah. What else would he be reading? Um, we've got another. There's a bit I just wanted to flag of um, Sir Edmund, who on the when Amy McDonald says, you know, well he says he can't go around to see her because it's his wife's birthday, and she's got a new gym slip for him in his size. So a good cross-dressing joke there as well. <laughs> which... And he says maybe five minutes. <laughs> um, yeah. So Sir Edmund has taken up the baton. Um, He's been st- standing up in Parliament. You know, this is what they're reading out in the newspaper is Sir Edmund has taken up the baton. Um, Joe, Joe says they could occupy the building. Chrissy says they already have as they've got a lease. Joe's happy that that means that the protest won't be illegal. One of the kind of weaker jokes, I think. And then Robin asks the girls if they want to play a game. Chrissy asks him if it's cards again. He says, no, it's strip monopoly. because But half the money's missing and then... She says, Chrissy says that her granddad taught her how to play this and she always wins, so that puts the end to that. So we've got these different sorts of strip games going on that never go anywhere as a plot device that aren't really needed. And then we've got the man from Spyros going to see Sir Edmund and then he's waiting he's, his time. He's going to blackmail him. Yeah. He's, yeah, Pluthero from Spyros is going to uh, blackmail the MP. Um, and then we have something that certainly wouldn't have been in the TV version where uh, George calls Mildred a silly bitch yeah. to the budgie, the budgie who's called Arthur, which will be called back for reasons not yet apparent. She goes off to buy a see-through nighty, so if she does die, George will have a chance of recognising her body. I quite like that joke, actually. Uh, Mr. Plutheroe sees that she's gone and goes to see George, and George tells him that he's in a strong position now. I'm in a strong bargaining position because there's no one left. And he's like, no, mate, (laughs) you're not in a strong position. Much to George's shock, the inconvenience of knocking down the surrounding houses is bound to have an effect. Dust, noise, vermin will reduce the cost of his property. And George is in a panic, so he agrees to sell it to the same price as the others. They shake hands. George says he has to take it to the sitting tenants. Our heroes have a three-year lease. So are you suggesting I knock down the bottom half and leave them up there? Says Mr. Plutheroe. Yeah, apparently in 1974, uh, tenants had rights, which uh, is something we've very, very much gone backwards on. Yeah, I couldn't believe it when I heard this bit. I was like, is this a work of fiction? That couldn't be, it couldn't be a plot point these days. No. Just throw them out. They'd just be kicked out within, well, m- moments. As soon as that paper was signed, they'd be gone. So this has put a spanner in the words. Chrissy is the leaseholder and we cut to her walking down the street. And Mr. Plutheroe, in his Rolls Royce, gets out and starts talking to her. He offers her lunch and a lift in the roller. And she asks why he's buying a lunch. And he goes, oh, no, I just got a small business matter to tie, tidy up. And Chrissy says, well, why don't we go to a nice little restaurant that I know? Um, and we all know where, she, where they're going. Uh, Bill Maynard's okay. restaurant. Yes, Greengrass's character development, all because of a little bit of garlic salt. He's now become a uh, a grade A chef. <laughs> yeah, with a, lo- with a lovely tidy kitchen. Yeah, it's it's completely different now. It's really nice, um, and he's either he's mixing in sauces and asking for Robin's opinion on it, 
and he makes a point of washing his hands after he's been touching different food. So we now have Chrissy having dinner with Mr. Plothero, who offers her £200 for the lease. I like the shots of them all looking through the uh, kitchen window of uh, of Chrissy and Plothero having their having their lunch. I think that's one of the nicer shots in the film is the is is Bill Maynard and uh, and Robin looking through the kitchen yeah. window. Yeah, I really wish that we'd see more of Robin and Bill Maynard and them working in this restaurant over the summer. I think that's like something that was missing that would have been really nice to see, and you could have got a lot out of that. More of Robin full stop, because in this third act that we're about to go into, he's barely in it at all, is he? It's, it's all them just trying to get through the remainder of the plot. Yeah, it's and like it's, a race yeah, to the that. finish, isn't it, with the plot, trying mm-hmm. to just get it finished. And to say that Robin's so prominent in the first two acts that by the third act he's barely, like you said, this uh, I think this is the main scene that he's in. So, yeah, I've got that Larry and um, Bill Maynard are watching through the kitchen Larry's already already told Bill that he's the reason he has to find a new place to live. So basically, they decide they're going to spike Plutheros' food. They go off to the chemists because they want to teach him a lesson. Um, at first, Robin just wants to add some black pepper to his steak, and then they come back with all sorts of concoctions from the chemist next door. Laxatives. Yes. And who doesn't like a good laxative joke? Exactly, yeah, yeah. and we get plenty of it. we get plenty of that going forward after he after he after he eats a meal and surprisingly enjoys it where i don't know how that happened after mixing all that shit into it but yeah what a waste of a steak i'm thinking at this point i know it looked quite <laughs> nice Robbie, until that shit into it yeah. until he'd rub laxatives into it um yeah so he comes back to his car he's got a note saying that uh, he needs to return to the office Arthur Lowe asks if he's got all the houses. Um, no, due to sitting tenants at number six. Communists? No, worse, idealists. Yeah, brilliant. We're still making those jokes now, aren't we? Yeah. Um, yes, I've put Arthur Lowe and his silent black secretary. And then, uh, yes, the, the communist and idealist joke um, before Pluthero needs to go to Thames TV uh, in a last-ditch attempt to cancel the, cancel the project. Yeah, because he says basically they're not getting a good press and um, Plither has to be excused because he's about to shit himself. And he tells him, no, he has to sit down. And basically he has to go on TV to try and defend the development as it's not an easy task um, because it looks like it's going to get cancelled on environmental grounds, but he's got until 6pm to try and get all the houses um, and then he says something about, um, you know, Arthur says, uh, if my name comes up, don't forget to stress that I give a lot to charity anon- anonymously, <laughs> which I like. It's a chari- to charity, but doesn't like to talk about it. Yeah. yeah. That's a, a, a smashy and nicey precursor there. Yeah, I, I'm thinking, And the score at this point, the score where he's on his way to Thames Television sounds a bit like uh, the Live and Let Die score. Very similar. Same year. Well, no, year after. So, mm. yeah, Live and Let Die is 1973. And, yeah, this is 1974. Oh, maybe a little bit of a, a ripping off of uh, Live and mm. Let Die there, yeah. So Definitely. He leaves the building. Uh, so, yeah, Plythora leaves the building looking like a broken man. He's on his way to the TV studio and wants to stop off at uh, Robbie and Chrissy and Joe's house. And that's where he sees George, gives him the papers to sign and runs off to the bathroom. Mildred returns home and spots the documents from Miss Plythora, after having enjoyed some sexual assault on the tube. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, oh, that tube. All those men pressed up close to you, breathing down your neck. Oh, it was lovely. 
Well, she isn't getting any issue from George, so you've got to enjoy your pleasure where you can, I guess. Miss Butherow threatens to go on TV and cancel the whole project. He leaves a broken man again. George is gutted that he's missed out on all the money, signs a document and runs out unnoticed away from Mildred. His car won't start at first, but then he gets and he speeds off. Luckily, Larry has left his car with the keys in it. Joe wonders if they should ask him first. Robin says he won't mind. It turns out he's underneath the car working on it. So they drive off. George pulls up outside Thames Television Studio. Nice world at war poster in the window. George sneaks in on the props car. The heroes arrive at the Thames TV studio. Turns out the security guard is Arthur Mulgrove. And he says to the security guards, let me in, I pay my licence. Oh, yeah, for in, ITV. In a, in a, yeah, in a hilarious BBC ITV joke. Um, yes, Arthur, Arthur Mulgrove. Yeah, who Mildred was in love with. So nice callback to earlier in the film. This gives Robin, Chrissy and Joe the opportunity to sneak off. George walks down the corridor where he bumps into Spike Milligan playing himself. I absolutely love this scene. I really, you did? Yeah. Because I'm thinking at the time, oh, good, thank God, Spike Milligan, some funny stuff's about to happen. Oh, no, it's not very good. I liked I it. Didn't, I didn't enjoy it at all. I, I think he is very much... Uh, uh very much taking the money and running at that point i just think i mean look it totally wasn't needed you don't need it in the film i think that he was there on the day filming something else and he went spike will you be in the film and i think that's it can you talk some absolute nonsense for a bit and we'll yeah. we'll cut we'll cut it into about 60 seconds and just yeah. slap it in the end of our film because it, it yeah I, I i have to say i did really enjoy it <laughs> it made me laugh i was like Oh, Spike's here. He's just talking gibberish. Because <laughs> it is just... Good beard. He's got a good beard, though. I'll give yeah, him that. Exactly. He's uh, he's looking good as Spike, I think, in this bit. Um, yeah. So we have a scene with Mildred and Arthur Mulgrove reminiscing. We're now in the t- TV studio where Bill Grundy appears. Bill Grundy, best known for his role in The Rise of the Sex Pistols. And not this film. Uh, he appears with a red book, which younger listeners... May not know what that signifies, but Sir Edmund thinks he's on This Is Your Life, and he's told he's not. Yeah, I mean, these are, these are some uh, some serious British TV references all being stacked on top of on top of each other at this point, aren't they? Yeah, this is your life joke. Um, and then we get the um, the bit that's teased in the trailer for some unknown fucking reason, completely out of context, which makes me think, Jesus Christ. Yeah. It's the Love Thy Neighbour crossover section where you have um, uh, where you have Rudolph Walker playing himself. Yeah, and Jack Smethurst and, as well there at the bar in the green room at um, Thames Television. Yeah, so they're having a conversation about chess, about black and white chess pieces, I think. Is it which that should go first? Again, it's one of those things so... Rope, well, not even rope, it's just so bad. So George recognises them and he uses one of the racial slurs to address Rudolph Walker that Jack Smethers' character uses in the show. And Jack Smethers calls him out on it. And he's like, yeah, but you say that to him. And he's he like, yeah, well, all get... the time. yeah, and he goes, oh, well, I, I get paid to or something. And then we have this line where Jack asks Rudolph what he'd like to drink. I fancy a white lady. He says it's just yeah. So then they um, so they tell George off for being racist, rightly so. 
Uh, and then they give him something racist to say. Yeah, it's just bizarre, isn't they it? Give, scene. Give it, give away a, a racial stereotype to uh, Pandasu. Yeah, Brilliant. I mean, I thought it was going to be a lot worse going off the trailer because the trailer is just the offensive line that George says to Rudolph Walker, and then Jack Smithers going, "You can't say that to him," and then it cuts away. And apparently, I think in later screenings of the film, this scene has been cut out, but it's obviously been put back in for the Blu-ray. You don't need yeah, it. Yeah, it's such a weird... And it's also relying so much on, you know, crossover of audiences. And, I mean, I don't know how popular Love Thy Neighbour was. I think it was pretty popular, so everyone would have known who who those two people were. But it's just it's just all a bit pointless, isn't it, by this point? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, and then our main characters bump into Spike Milligan. And this is what makes me think that this was all improv because they look totally perplexed and almost want to laugh. I think Joe sort of says something almost laughing and then it, it's sort of, it's gone before it's even, even happens. And then we have a, a bit that did make me laugh where we're in the TV gallery and we've got a cameraman zooming in on a woman's chest and the producer says, John on two, I know you're a tit man, love, but let's photograph the money, eh? Which I did quite enjoy. I, for some reason, managed to miss that. But then oh. also, I'm thinking about at this point, you would never see a current affairs show today where they're talking about housing issues. Would That's you? what I thought. Just, just, just wouldn't happen. No. Because, because um, they don't want to. The quite funny spoonerism where Pluthero says, uh, "Oh yeah, Mister Spiros gives uh, gives several children to dogs charities." I like that. That made me laugh. That made me laugh as well. I enjoyed that. And you've got yeah Arthur Lowe watching with dismay at this. And yeah, and then you've got um, basically Sir e- Sir Edmund. There's this Churchillian speech about fighting development, and it turns out that. Sir Edmund, who everyone thinks is going to be fighting for the development, is on the side of the developers. And Mr. Pluthereau is supporting the um, the people against the development. And then George tries to sneak on stage with the signed paperwork, but he's forcibly removed. Pluthereau doesn't realise that he has a document that he needs for the project to go ahead. He rips it up and then realises that he had number six there. And then we cut to the signs being removed from outside the houses. Mr. Pluthero is now in work overalls. He's been demoted. Robin asks Chrissy if she can play chess, which of course she can. Robin tells her to forget it. Arthur Mulgrove is moving in with George and Mildred as a lodger. She's wearing a see-through nighty. And Chrissy fakes that she can't play chess and that she's got it mixed up with drafts. And I'm I'm thinking at this point, why is he still trying to get them to play strip games where she's basically, you know, half an hour earlier said that she wants to that that, that she wants to sleep with him basically yeah Yeah, exactly Uh, none of that stuff makes any sense at at some point in that um ensuing melee towards the end of the with with the um show the current affairs show being recorded that's like the first time we hear robin say anything for about 20 minutes as well he's supposed to be the main character yeah it's um all quite rushed towards the end yeah, and then, um, yeah, he has the last line of the film, does Robin? So so they decide on what each piece is worth. A pawn is worth tights, Bishop is worth a skirt, and Robin says the whole point of the game is to try to mate. The end. Budum and indeed Tish. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, it's so like I say, at the end of last episode, I was really quite worried about watching this. Um, but actually pleasantly surprised by the TV show. Um, in the end, ultimately disappointed by the film, although I, I thought I was going to be really offended by it and really fucking hate it. But actually, it was just quite boring, really, wasn't it? And actually, that's a, a bit of a theme with the three films we've seen so far, as they all kind of, before they can get too offensive or too poorly made or whatever, they're, they're all just kind of boring more than anything, which mm. for comedy films is is the biggest um, the biggest problem. Yeah, they all fall quite flat, I think, and I think that's the biggest problem. I mean, for me, I'm quite conflicted because there's stuff in it that I quite liked, but there's lots of stuff that I didn't like about it. And I think after watching the sitcom, I had high hopes for, for this. I thought, well, if it's anything like it, I'm enjoying the, the series, then hopefully the film would be like that. I think Paula Wilcox is good in it. Like I said earlier, she always seems to be good in stuff, but I don't think she's given an awful lot to do, but she's always an engaging screen presence when she is up there. And I always enjoy seeing her in stuff. She's also one of the better actors as well. Her and Yutha Joyce are like the two, the two properly good actors. I feel. Yeah. Sally Sally Thompson, I'm not convinced by as an actor, particularly when she doesn't have lines. I've just noticed that she's like she's always just kind of smoke, smoking, smirking, or is she is she smirking? Is she corpsing? It doesn't seem to be. It's like she's immediately out of character the moment she isn't saying anything. Right. I didn't really notice and that, but I didn't feel like she not, was given an awful lot to do, would be my No, feeling. she wasn't. She wasn't, and she is given a lot more in the TV show. You know, and we're, we're not watching films like this for great moments of acting, particularly, but that's just something that's so noticeable. Again, probably because she probably does that all through the tv show as well but because everything is a bit clearer and crisper on the blu-ray transfer of something shot on the film those kind of things are much more noticeable to me i think and i think obviously one of the big issues is they to feel like they're giving it a big screen transfer they have to give it a big screen plot and then the moment they do that they're compromising their sitcom style uh jokes and their their tighter 24 minute plots that they have for each episode mm. um and I think this is this is a kind of greater problem that we're going to talk about with a lot of films from the 70s through to the 2000s is that when you take these sitcom characters out of their um, uh, out of their enclosed space of their 24 minute half hour show and have to come up with something for them to do, the the film can quite often suffer. And I think that is one of the um, things that we're going to revisit quite a lot i think yeah i think you're right and i think one of the things i wondered about while i was watching it would it have made more sense actually to send them on holiday or to put them in a different environment than where we're at at the moment because it all feels very slight you know this housing development plot line which doesn't really seem to go anywhere it almost seems like to suck the life out of the film that we've got to keep coming back to this rather than just hanging out with the characters it would almost have been better if they'd have just done it as like a 90 minute slice of life with these characters and, and gone really, really uh, basic on the plot. Mm. But then that wasn't, you know, those kind of films weren't really in fashion at that point. And, you know, that, that kind of thing, we're looking for a good kind of 10, 15, 20 years before, 
you know, we'd, we're seeing kind of low on plot uh, type comedy films. Yeah, I was just going to say it's it's ripe for a Richard Linklater kind of movie where, you know, like a hangout movie of just hanging out with the characters over the course of a certain amount of time. And I think that's why I would like to see more of the restaurant and maybe what the characters get over during the summer or something. You know, Robin's got this job and the kind of different kind of interplay of how that would have worked, I think would have been a lot more interesting rather than obviously this plot heavy film which i think other than maybe some of the kind of lower budget things that were going on in new hollywood in the early 70s you know you weren't really getting that particularly not in this country so one thing we've been doing with all the films we've been watching guy is asking the question does this film have any kind of legacy lasting legacy and if so what is that well i think this film combined with the sitcom has quite a big legacy that casts quite a big shadow over um, comedy, both in this country and on the other side of the Atlantic. So obviously the sitcom spawned uh, Robin's Nest and George and Mildred in the UK, all of which came after the film. Um, And then obviously there was a US remake called Three's Company starring uh, uh, John Ritter in the... um, in the Richard O'Sullivan uh, part. And then that went on to have its own spin-off uh, called Three's a Crowds, which was the American version of Robin's Nest and the American version of George and Mildred called The Ropers. Um, I think one of the biggest legacies then of that is that it gave the world John Ritter. I am a big fan of his. Um, again, taken from us far too early. The film Bad Santa is actually dedicated to him. He plays the... Um, the department store manager in that and he is absolutely brilliant in that i'd go as far as to say that without uh man about the house you'd have no man behaving badly i don't know if you would agree with that yeah and then also the the other legacy which i've kind of touched upon already is that this 70s period of mainly kind of hammer-led adaptations uh gave us the whole theme of our podcast you know about our remakes, our big screen remakes of sitcoms are always poor, while I think a lot of them in the 70s probably were, and that's what gave them this reputation. But I think mm. we're, we're, we're going to find out whether that's true or not, obviously. It gave us Brian Murphy, who, as I've said, absolute sitcom legend. And uh, something that I found out while I was uh, researching Luther Joyce is that the Smiths used her picture as an image on the cover of their 1986 single, Ask. So I guess one thing, would you recommend people watch Man About the House? TV show, yes. Film, no. Yeah. The film is inessential. Yeah, but I would I definitely tell people watch the series because it's really good. I think I was surprised how good it was, I think. Surprised myself with how much I laughed, especially at the first kind of two or three episodes, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. So we have to do our ranking. Well, can I suggest, I think we can both safely say we enjoyed it more than Lesbian Vampire Killers, did we? Or did we? No, no, I think it's it's definitely better than Lesbian Vampire Killers. I'm, I don't know how much, if I, I don't know if I think it's better than Staggered or not. Um, I I think this is better than Staggered, I think I'd say. Oh, do you see? I I would disagree with you there, and I would I would if I was, had to watch one of them again, it would definitely be staggered. 
So where do we, where do we go here then, Guy? Does it go above staggered or below it? I guess if you want to put it, if you want to put staggered above it, I won't fight you too much on this one. So staggered maintains our number one spot for now. Is it going to have it by the end of the series, Guy? I think probably not. I'm sceptical, but we'll have to find out with our next episode. Shall we move on to the quiz? Now, yeah. I've um, our quiz subjects this week are I've written you five questions on Three's Company, not Man About the House, and I believe you've written me five questions on Richard O'Sullivan. That is correct. Now, I have read his Wikipedia page, but that was quite a while ago now, and I've suddenly realised I've forgotten everything I <laughs> everything I knew about him, so this will be interesting. Do you want to go first? Yeah. So, in the opening credits of Man About the House, what vehicle is Robin driving or attempting to drive? That's uh, a nice start for me there, Guy. I believe he was driving a moped. And that is correct. So your first question about Three's Company. Who played Stanley Roper in 58 episodes of Three's Company? Stanley Roper is the George Roper equivalent. Dunno. It was Norman Fell, Guy. And Norman Fell, <laughs> the only other thing I've ever heard his name on is, you know, the episode of The Simpsons where Homer's ill at home and Marge has rented him the erotic adventures of Hercules to watch at home. Right, okay. <laughs> Make him feel better. And it's starring Norman Fell as Zeus. <laughs> you see, I yeah, I don't know him. And I think I, I think what I know about what Three's Company is gonna be very limited, so I can't seem to get him any part. I did read the Wikipedia page earlier and it's all gone. <laughs> yeah, so in the early sixties he appeared in two films with Cliff Richard. The first one was the young ones, what was the second? now i again forgetting i think it's one that sounds like the title of another film isn't it you did mention it yes wonderful life that's correct two points to rob come on guy right here's uh your chance to claw another point back what are the first six words of the theme song of three's company now three's company's also got a great theme tune much like uh, man about the house um but can you remember how it goes I've never heard if I it. Have it. Really? No, I've not heard it, so I don't know. Right, well we should play out the uh play out this episode to the function from Three's Company. Right. The first six words are Come and knock on a door. <laughs> Good singing by me there. We'll Lovely. be waiting for you. The Robin's Nest theme tune was written by Richard O'Sullivan, but Brian Bennett of which sixties band performed it? That was very much the uh the fashion for stars to write and sing their own theme tunes. Yeah. Uh, the birds. No, the shadows. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Which uh, which American network? This this is a guessable one. Which American network aired all eight series of Three's Company? NBC. You're one letter out, guy. There. CB- CBS was it? ABC. ABC. In 1972. O'Sullivan appeared in the sex comedy The Au Pair Girls, featuring the sister of which singer-songwriter? Uh, let's say it's the sister of Van Morrison. No, Nick Drake. Really? Yeah, Gabrielle Drake, his sister, appeared in The Au Pair Girls. 
which member of the Three's Company cast won the show's only primetime acting Emmy in 1984? Yeah, Joyce It's not, it's John Ritter. <sighs> Should have gone with that. Sir O'Sullivan appeared in a public information film warning about the dangers of what? I am going to say electricity pylons. Oh, I wish it was. No, motorists not wearing seat belts. Oh, no, I mean, that's a, that's a very real risk, isn't it? Okay, so your final question, again, guessable. Which star of Arrested Development played three different characters over the course of two years in the 1980s in Three's Company? Two of them, Doctors. Is it, is it main cast, Arrested Development, or is it... Yes. Is it Jeffrey Tambor? It is Jeffrey Tambor. Oh, yeah, I've got a point. One from five. And I got two from five. Yeah. Okay, well, that still keeps us pretty close then. By my calculations, Guy, that means you now have six, and I have seven points in our series scores. So, yeah, thank you for listening to our episode on Man About the House. And in the next episode... We'll be looking at Mike Bassett, England manager, with television comedy writer Steve Dunn as our first ever special guest. I'm very much looking forward to that guy. I've never seen Mike Bassett, England manager, which I cannot believe. Because I'd have thought at the time I'd have definitely wanted to have seen that. But no, for whatever reason, I actively avoided it. But now I'm very happy about the potential of uh, watching it. Yeah, I saw it at the cinema when it came out and I got it on DVD. So I'll be breaking open the old DVD copy and uh, giving it another, another watch. I'm quite excited to watch it again, see how it plays plays uh, plays out and see if it lives up to those expectations. Well, I know Steve, our guest, is a big fan as well, which is why he chose to be on that episode. Thank you for listening and it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Oh, are we going to do this? Is this going to be a thing? We could turn it into a thing if you want. Guy, I'll see you next week. Looking forward to Mike Bassett. Thank you for listening to Britcom Goes to the Movies with Guy Walker and Rob Heath. Thanks to Mark Phillips for the podcast artwork. You can get in touch with us by emailing BritcomGoes at gmail.com or you can find us on Instagram and Twitter as at BritcomGoes. And don't forget to check out the Britcom Goes to the Movies playlist on Spotify and Amazon Music. Please like, subscribe and review so that others can find the podcast and we'll see you on the next episode.